it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. This is one sensational shot. You're listening to The Evening Glass with Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton. This is going to be our final Evening Glass podcast of 2017. And whilst this is not going to be our full roundup of the year, that's going to be coming up in a, in our next podcast, we do uh, wrap up with a, a few bits and bobs we've been meaning to talk about. We do a little bit of a TV roundup. The Detectorist, Star Trek Discovery, The X-Files, and also an online re-release of Due South, the Canadian-American cop show drama comedy, uh, is all stuff that we touch upon uh, today. We also talk about Arthur, the 1981 film with Dudley Moore, as part of my DVD A to Z project, which is ongoing here at the Evening Glass and One Sensational Shot. Uh, And we also launch our new hashtag, Oscars So Straight, which uh, Fletch will touch upon later in this episode. Thanks very much indeed, guys. Don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher and of course do get in touch on Facebook uh, and onesensationalshot.com and Twitter too look forward to speaking to you soon thanks bye See it. There's just so much out. Yesterday I was at a dinner party with Lisa Kerrigan. Everyone was discussing the television they're watching, and mm-hmm. we must have mentioned 20 shows in the course of just half an hour across so yep. many platforms. Stuff I'd never even heard of, stuff that involving people that I don't know from the show that was being discussed, or even from the show which was used as a reference point to understand their performance in the show that's being discussed. <laughs> it's it's becoming uh, crazier, and yet these people are still able to get to the cinema as well. And and I do. I'll see forty films this year, and yet I don't know how people are finding the time. How do you do it? I, I, so um, Stephen Lang, a friend of ours that's visiting from Madison, Wisconsin, he said he does it quite smartly, in the same way that you change your mortgage provider every two years and your insurer every year. You shop around for the best deal. Nowadays, I, th- I find it, it must be quite common to do what Stephen Lang suggested, which was January Hulu, February Amazon. March, maybe through to May or June, you actually get the HBO subscription. Then wow. September, October, you do Netflix. And it, you move between them. All Just cancel one and bring in another. And that way you're still only paying 10 or $20 or pounds a month. And you're able to binge watch. But I, I've never been much for binge watching. Oh, and also... I lost Twin Peaks. My Skybox deleted episodes four through ten. Oh no! I know. I, what I, I felt like do? I felt like a texting you. Uh, well, I, now that is some of the finest TV I've seen in in many many years. I'll find some way to. It won't be difficult to track it down. I think that over Christmas it will likely be repeated, but there aren't repeats in November. Hopefully, they'll come in December. It was because I had improperly set up the Skybox. And I hadn't told it not to delete the oldest stuff when it needs to delete stuff to make way for new stuff. Idiot. Mm. One idiot move. We actually sat down a couple of days ago. We'd only got up to episode three. And we were really in a position to, rather than watch a film, get immersed in two or three episodes of Twin Peaks. We had that time. 
and I, I screwed it up. Instead, we watched Barbarian Sound Studio with your friend Toby Jones. Oh, yeah. And, that I mean, he's in a show at the moment that I, I adore, which is Detectorist. But mm. I know that that's a bit of an acquired taste. I was talking to someone at work about uh, the BBC comedy Detectorists. And uh, they were not that impressed. They said that they hadn't taken to it too much. But I'm, I'm a little bit of an unfair advantage on Detectorist. One of the reasons I'm so into it, I think, or why I got hooked so early on was, was simply because they film it in my, my old stomping ground, Framlingham where the castle on the hill is. Yeah. So um, it's... And I, I've been in the pub with Mackenzie, Mackenzie Crook's been there with Toby Jones, and they've been sitting there having a pint just before bed or whatever, that, you know, they're in the hotel that they're staying in. So I've seen them around filming it, and I was then anticipating the show. So then just to see a lot of the streets and, and just be able to pick out the Chinese restaurant and the pubs they were going to, the fact that they were going into the exterior of a pub and then it clearly switched to a different pub <laughs> on the interior, yeah. just little little things like that that I found quite satisfying. But it's um, really offbeat. I, have, have you managed to catch up with Detectorists at all? Yeah, I've seen only two episodes and what I saw was incredibly warm and enjoyable. Not laugh out loud funny. But I don't. Really, it's not supposed really to. Need it's, that it's, all the time. It's chuckle humor. You kind yeah. of chuckle to yourself, um, and a lot of the time. So it's, I mean, I may as well mention it. We're on the podcast, so Detectorists. It really is that it's it's single camera TV sitcom. So it's not you know four camera uh, Seinfeld Friends kind of thing. It really is just a single camera following people around. It's got that very kind of. It's got a bit of a documentary film uh, f- film feel, but it really is very offbeat. A uh, very offbeat sense of humour. It's very slow paced, much like being a metal detector is, I suppose, as you're uh, trying to stand there in the middle of a field, uh, uh, trying to detect, you know, something that may or may not be there uh, for hours and hours at a time. And Mackenzie Crook, uh, Gareth from the Office, and of course Pirates of the Caribbean as well. Uh, it's it's his baby, I think. It's his show. He uh, wrote, was written and directed it, and um, Toby Jones is co-star. I didn't know that. And wow, yeah, I didn't realise. Did you not know Mackenzie Crook wrote and directed why, it? Why didn't he set it in the West Country then? Huh. Well, it's kind of set in northern Essex, but filmed in Suffolk. And I think bits in Essex as well. Oh, wow. There's some... Um, good on him. There's actually... Oh, do you know... Well, well, yeah, sorry. Well there's, a great scene, <laughs> there's a great scene in the new series where uh, I, I was just reading the <laughs> local paper and... Uh, there's a moment where these big baddies, which is the big business, there's an establishing shot of London and the baddies are in there office talking about how they're going to put up all these um solar panels uh, on a on a far uh, over a field so yes it's good for the environment but the problem is you then only have so much time left left to um metal detect in this field and that's kind of going to sort of the ongoing saga of this uh, particular series and uh so we've got the exterior establishing shot of london we go to the interior where they're in the office in the boardroom talking i was reading in the local paper that the interior is actually, it's in Suffolk, it's in Dever House, which is where the county council is, uh, and a lot of my old colleagues at Suffolk uh, Police uh, are still based there as well. So it's just off the A14 near the Asda, uh, and that's <laughs> where the interior is. Um, but yeah, it's honestly, if people are listening at home, uh, I, I know that because you and I are from Suffolk Fletch, um, or have you have roots in Suffolk, that... A lot of our friends listening, uh, the most uh, hardcore of the audience, do do tend to listen, uh, do, are from Suffolk as well, so maybe they'll feel inclined to... Maybe they're already watching it or feel inclined to join in. But, yeah, it's it's really, really good fun. About two metal detectorists in uh, North Essex, filmed in Suffolk, and it really is just about the ebb and flow of 
not only the earth and and the seasons but really your relationships and this it's the little things in life the little details in life that that are important so yeah i i really enjoy it i like but you are right i i liked what you said about just i mean i don't have i don't really binge watch things so i like what you said about your friend does with um going from you know, two months of Netflix, two months of Sky or Now TV, two months of Amazon. Mm. Uh, I don't know if I'd have the the the, uh, the true grit, <laughs> if you like, to, to keep it up. Um, and it feels like you'd need a real battle plan of what shows you were then going to binge watch and get through. What You know, plough your way through. You know, okay, I'm going to watch Amazon because I want to watch these three shows and get through them in mm. as many months before I move on to another provider. I don't know if I'd have it in me. I'm disappointed that I don't at the moment have access to Mindhunters because uh, House of Cards doesn't... I heard the first season, maybe the second season as well, was pretty good. But in terms of what excites me about a David Fincher television project, Mindhunters is more up my alley than House of Cards ever was. Also, I saw the original House of Cards. I borrowed it from Kennedy eight years ago. Really like that. And I don't need to see an American remake that runs for twice as long with four times as many episodes. That's less interesting to me. But Mindhunters with Holt McElhaney, Fincher Perennial. That's the one I want to watch. Uh, I can't, but I, again, I can't even remember what platform it's on. In America, that's Netflix one. That's Netflix, but America has Hulu as well, which we we don't have access to the Hulu platform. And no, not really. But I know that Sky work with Hulu uh, because if you get a Now TV box, that is essentially a Hulu box, but with a Sky right. logo on it. I can't keep up. I can't. This is why I'm retreating into Laserdisc because they're physical in front of me, tangible and identifiable, and then it becomes mine. That's that's probably part of it. Everything else seems so ephemeral. It was dif- difficult enough. When Cable and Sky went to digital and from four or five film channels we moved to 12, that was a head trip. <laughs> and, and that was, you, you couldn't know, handle it. That was, what was that, 2000, 2001, and suddenly I could watch Go or Disturbing Behaviour every night of the week. Well, if anyone uh, at home has their own way of getting through tv getting through all the shows that are on uh do let us know go to one dot com and uh, use the contact link there to get in touch with the show or uh, get in touch through the facebook page or or our twitter because um i <laughs> i would love to hear from you i i don't have it in me i don't think to um keep revolving around i, I have netflix perpetually and i have now tv which essentially is sky um and i've i've never uh stumped up the cash to go to Amazon as as well. So and I I, fa- I barely am getting my money's worth from from what I'm doing. I'm I'm watching Kirby Enthusiasm at the moment. I've been watching Star Trek Discovery. Um and I'm trying to think what else I've got on the go at the moment. But I'm I'm in a mid-season break for Star Trek Discovery. That's been a a, a scene. I don't know how much you know about Star Trek Discovery Fletch. You're not the world's biggest trekkie by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, I, I you, know but... enough that you should say trekker, but no, I don't like Star Trek and I don't watch <laughs> it. But it's trekker. Come on. Surely okay. or has or is trekkie being owned in the same way that among elements of the LGBTQIAPK community, they feel it's okay to say queer. Whereas I still think there must be some fellas in their 60s and 70s thinking, oh, fuck off. I'm not having that back. No, no. <laughs> so uh, is, is Trekkie now accepted? Are they owning it? I've got no clue. You know me, I'm a big uh, Star Wars fan, so Star Trek's always um, been a little bit sort of second in my heart. 
in terms of in terms of kind of where I got space for. But one thing I will say about Star Trek is, you know, each episode is always a wonderful morality play. This one takes more from the pages of the Game of Thrones. The Westworlds, another show you probably haven't watched. Uh, <laughs> yeah, correct. In my opinion, it was rubbish. People at work love Westworld. They absolutely adore it. Oh, you didn't I, go I, for it? Well, well. Huh. I, I didn't go for it. I just felt like it was too written. Um, we're going all over the shop here, but Star Trek Discovery has got more of an ongoing plot, an ongoing... Uh, it's a little bit more serialised rather than episodic. You've um, just reminded the, me. I, I, got, I was watching Walking Dead... A couple of nights ago, I watched episodes back to back last week's and this week's. And with Walking Dead, um, the trick pulled by the writers is to stretch about five days action across ten plus episodes by showing different perspectives. Kind of like a very slow and eventually boring Rashomon. I don't need to see the perspective of each individual character. And it made me wonder whether uh, Sasha Williams, played by Sonequa Martin-Green... Had even died of. It's been so long since I've seen her in the show. I can't remember if she died or not. And then you just made me realise. Oh well, either way, she's in the Star Trek, so that's probably uh, in in practical terms. That's probably why she's not on set much because she's off exploring galaxies with who? Who writes? It's not Gene Roddenberry. He's dead. Who does it now? <laughs> I'm trying to remember who the showrunner is. You've completely put me on the. Oh, Fuller uh, probably. I think he did. He. I think he was involved in Heroes. He kicked to an it off. He kicked it off, but then I think he um, he had to leave the show, and it's actually had a lot of production problems. So yeah, Fuller Brian Fuller created it, and then he was helming you know so many shows at the same time. I think he left he left Star Trek Discovery. I can't even remember when in the production it was. I think it was quite deep. He'd really set it up. I think they'd cast the whole thing and, and everything. Uh, but of course, he's Mister American Gods, isn't he? So I think that's what he was. Oh, that's what he does. Time. Yeah, sorry, I was. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. I don't know why I thought he did Heroes, but he. I liked Dead Like Me that he did years and years ago, and I think he had oh, some. Oh God, I've forgotten about some that. vague involvement he, in Heroes. He wasn't. He wasn't showrunner though. You're right. He was involved in um, Wonderfuls as well. Yeah. As, oh, as... that was even better. Yeah. Yeah, I like yeah. that because Matey did the song, didn't he? Andy Partridge of XTC. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, he kicked Star Trek Discovery off. And now I think, is it Alex Kurtzman, I think, is the has had something to do with it as well. At one point they were involving um, the director of uh, like Wrath of Khan and, uh, and Undiscovered Country as well. I'll, I'll put it very, very simply. It's, a, it's not so episodic. It's more of an ongoing story, but... The main thing is it's they're at war with the Klingons. It's ten years before Kirk and Spock. It's set just prior to prior to those original uh, uh, series events. Everything seems way more high tech than in the original sixties show as well. But they're at war, and as a result of that, Starfleet doesn't feel quite so much like this great exploration, uh, benevolent humanitarian organization, and it feels a bit more like a military, which to me doesn't quite work. But I guess part of the drama of the show is they try there are people that are odds uh, at odds with that there are people on the ship that are scientists and don't like the fact that they're at war so i guess you know in that sense it works and it's certainly been fun i've enjoyed watching it each week so um it could be a lot worse um <laughs> but anyway there's there's star trek star trek discovery it could be a lot worse <laughs> i want i want them to put that on the poster luke little boy one sensational shot oh jason Sorry. isaacs yeah, Jason Isaacs is uh, the captain. He's not the main character, but he's the captain. Doug and he's... Jones. 
obviously. He's really great. Um, he he really is good. Yeah, Doug Doug Jones is in there as well. Uh, he's um the engineer, I think, and he's uh, he puts in a good good performance. I like to imagine Doug Jones and Andy Serkis in casting meetings, one following the other. The whole time that they're moving around Los Angeles, Andy Serkis saying, I think this would be best executed with motion capture. Doug Jones following him in, kind of scowling, and then saying, what we need is a man in a suit for this. You know, people like the reality, the, the tangibility of a man in a suit. And that's just their entire career, isn't it? Eventually they're going to, they will face off and it will be absurd because they'll be themselves sans mocap uniform and prosthetics just having a fight in a car park and people will think... Who are these fucking geeks? And why are they scrapping, going... You know. <laughs> I made a heinous uh, error as well. You're completely right. Doug Jones um, is 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 the uh, first officer. So he's kind of... In a way, he's kind of the Spock character. I bet he's got a lot of stuff on his face, hasn't he? Yeah, complete prosthetics, mask, and all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. He, but he's really... He's one of the highlights of the... Um, He's of the whole show. He really is fantastic. Oh, I like. I do like him. Yeah. Um. First thing I saw him in, I think, was Mimic by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, that's a scary film, actually. Not a great film, and what a surprise! Miramax and Dimension took it and cut it up and made it worse. Although mm. you know, made it for those that wouldn't have enjoyed a good film that ran longer. They made a shorter film that was not quite as good. Oh no! But Hocus Pocus as well. He's the dead body uh, man. In that. Yeah. Is he called Billy? Yeah, everyone yeah, knows yeah. Hocus Pocus. Now there's a film we should watch that in depth. Listeners and the internet in general would be all over us like white on rice if we did a commentary or a deep discussion of Hocus Pocus. We could do, we could do that. That could be us. It messed me right up. It made me have <laughs> impure thoughts about Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica oh, no. Parker, and Kathy Jimmy. Yeah, my adolescence took weird turns because of Sarah Jessica Parker as a demure witch. Good film, Omri Katz from Erie, Indiana. Everything's in there. Uh, I should give... Uh, you mentioned Erie, Indiana. That really got my mind racing to 90s TV shows, our favourite shows of the 90s. And I really should give a significant shout-out to a really big deal this week. The news dropped that Due South, one of my favourite shows of all time, has recently been added to YouTube completely uh, officially and, and legitimately. Uh, so you can now with a completely clear conscience uh, go to uh, YouTube and uh, check out the entire first season of the Canadian cop show Due South Uh, it's about a a Mountie that goes to Chicago on the trail of the killers of his father and it's a complete fish out of water comedy with a lot of cop show partners cop show tropes uh, and of course being a Mountie dressed in full regalia in the middle of dirty, filthy Chicago in the 90s. Uh, he uh, is complete fish out of water and uh, is very, very polite to people who are very rude to him back, but uh, we'll, we'll stop at nothing to be polite. And uh, a lot of the comedy comes through uh, through his partner as well. His partner's Ray Vecchio. He popped up in, like, was it is it NCIS or all, all those shows years later? But it's a shame, shame about him. He should have been, I think he should have been a big star. But Due South didn't really take off in a massive way. It was obviously a little bit bigger here in, in the UK, but because I think it didn't find a massive audience in the USA, it, it limped along for two seasons, and then they just about managed to get a third season, third and fourth season out of it, which were um, part financed by the BBC as well. So, um, but what but do you yeah, think, like I... What do you think about the fake Ray Vecchio? 
that is in season three and four. They changed the actor who mm. plays Ray Vecchio. David Luciano goes undercover. His character, Ray Vecchio, goes undercover. And they just bring in a new Ray Vecchio uh, who will, everyone has to pretend is the actual Ray Vecchio. <laughs> I once had a, an idea for a band. If I ever had another band, I would call it the real Ray Vecchio. That would be the name of my band. And it was, uh, it was uh, I, I presume that was uh, mandated by government initiatives and tax breaks because I, I think that there is a, a finite time that anything, film or television, can be filmed in Canada before Callum Keith Rennie appears in it. It, it might be <laughs> six hours, it might be 20 hours, but on a long enough time scale, Callum Keith Rennie has to appear in a Canadian shot film or television <laughs> series he's in the second x-files film as uh, i think he's a russian Jim. yes God, it sucks doesn't it oh i like that second x-files film. i have i, I only think... watched it the f- i only watched it once but compared to fight the future which was legit uh, i didn't fancy i want to believe maybe on the next I like X-Files that first movie one. it should be half and half half molder half scully because the second one was very much about scully's the believer and Mulder's, you know when that second X-Files film came out, it was the same week or near enough the same week as The Dark Knight. And I <laughs> I remember yeah. saying that X-Files I Want to Believe is a better film than The Dark Knight. Oh, you know what I did that with? Congo <laughs> over Jurassic Park. There was a three-month period where I insisted to myself that Congo was better. <laughs> I was about 12. It's and still... Congo's really bad. Uh, no, rubbish. um... <laughs> Well, you know I want to believe I enjoyed. <laughs> I found the, the themes to be just a, a bit more mature, I suppose. I, and I guess people weren't running around in costumes or something. So I think, uh, I mean, it's not necessarily better shot. You know, the cinematography and all that kind of thing. Dark Knight wins hands down. X Files, I want to believe, really does feel like a TV movie. But mm. I really did enjoy the the themes of uh, faith and whether that was a religious faith, a spiritual faith. Uh, faith in a relationship, faith in you know your your other half, your significant other, and also faith in yourself. That if if you believed in, if you were true to yourself and believed in w- what you always used to believe in, or if you kind of sold out, and there, there's loads of themes going on in that second X Files film that I think makes it a really strong piece of work. But I suppose Chris Carter probably shouldn't have directed it. That was mm. probably the number one problem. Yeah, I think Carter isn't as strong a director as Rob Bowman. Rob Bowman went on to do that dragon film, didn't he? You think? Reign of Fire? Yeah, I'm sure that was Rob uh, Rob Bowman. I like the ones that the careers that I follow were Morgan and Wong. They were my favourite oh, writers, yeah. my favourite creative team on it. They wrote at least one episode of that of the revival series, and I, I think they're on board for this new one, which is it's January. You've got some catching up to do, Fletch. You, you <laughs> didn't see the revival show, did yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I didn't, no. Do go, uh, do go to check out G South, which is now legitimately it's on the Encore Plus uh, YouTube channel. So if you go to Encore Plus YouTube channel, you'll find all of G South season one on there. It really is uh, a a real classic Canadian TV show, which I, I would highly recommend if you want to get some feel good '90s vibes. Uh, and yeah, there's the, there's the new X Files coming up, uh, and you need to check out X Files season ten, I suppose, the mini series, mm. the revival show. Though I like Due South and one of my favourite television memories of the late 90s is a very specific snippet. Gross is descending an elevator cable and his arm catches fire. Do you remember that? Yeah. 
<laughs> that is when it gets nutty because it starts off not completely realistic, but it's it starts off a little more grounded, and by the end it becomes. I I, I remember in the final ever episode. He can tell where they're in the hold of an aeroplane and he can tell where the aeroplane is headed by listening to the mechanics uh, of the of of the plane, like as it's just whirring. Mm. <laughs> it, it's quite self-referential by the end. It kind of is poking fun of itself, I suppose. But yeah, when I got Wind of Due South's release... I immediately checked the YouTube channel. I knew that Slings and Arrows would probably be on there, and it is. But so too is another Curate's Egg and a cult favourite of mine from the late 90s, which I think I watched on Trouble, Ready or Not. A couple of teenage girls living their lives. That was a show I only saw, I don't know, a dozen episodes. But it was always a delight when when I happened to come across it. I also had a crush on Laura Bertram as Amanda Zim, obviously. And the other one was really cool and kind of Sleater Kinney esque Listeners, yeah, look for Ready or Not as well. Degrassi's on there too. That's a given. So this is all on the Encore Plus uh, mm. YouTube channel. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, the first. So basically, season, it's a, yeah, it's a complete treasure trove of uh, treasure trove of classic '90s TV. But ironically, we found another platform. <laughs> Yet another platform. We're up to about 15 platforms now. I just want a provider to come to me and say, Fletch, everything for 100 pounds. You know what? I think eventually somebody will manage to do that. Disney probably. They've bought every other thing, haven't they? I've got a Virgin Media box, and it's not quite there yet, but you can tell that they're trying to put so much of the on-demand stuff in there Hmm. and make it, you know, within their... Oh, God, I work in marketing and digital marketing, and I can't remember... (laughs) I mean, like, the user experience, the interface, the UI, the user interface. (laughs) They're trying to make that... uh, They're trying to bring in... Netflix and YouTube and really bring yeah. it all into their interface. So I think eventually you'll be doing that. When my dad visits and he can't find the pause button on the Sky Control, it slightly irritates me and I think about chimpanzees and cameras. But then when I go home <laughs> and try to navigate the Virgin Media handset, I'm just the same. It's terrible. The Virgin Media handset is really bad. But you think it is bad? Because I don't think it's very good. My dad has been using it for years and years, so he's got the hang of it. No, the, you, you no. want to use the... I can't remember what around it is now. I'm going to get it wrong. But No, they when got you're it wrong. That's it, the problem. They got it wrong. When you're holding it and you're not looking at the remote, if you're trying to navigate up, down, left, right on a, on a, on a user interface menu, I think you keep trying to like pause and play the TV... They've got, in whatever way round it is, they've got the up, down, left, right, sort of the wrong way round. And you keep pressing the wrong one, no matter what you're trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's messy. My, my Sky Controller, I'm, um, it's it's like Existence by Cronenberg. I've biologically integrated with it so that I don't need to point it towards the television. I can basically think what I want to happen. Mm. And, it, and it does it. Synthesis. Oh. <laughs> oh, what was that? Did I that get something right? <laughs> that was <laughs> That's the little jingle I like to play when you get something correct. Yeah. Say something uh, correct, Fletch. Go on, say something <laughs> say something like two plus two is four or something. I don't know if it is anymore, but I do know that Apocalypse Now is still the best film Hollywood's ever made. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> uh <laughs> 
It's just the little uh, film that auto plays when you go onto the Encore Plus YouTube channel oh, to check see, out Due right. South and other Canadian 90s classics. <laughs> we, we didn't need their permission for them to be our sponsor. We just went ahead and, and did it and executed it ourselves. That shows initiative. I'll get in touch with them immediately. <laughs> or they'll be in touch with us, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it. I'll be on that all night now. Because it sounds a little bit like um, Use Somebody, which sounds a little bit like any M83 track from the first two albums. <laughs> there we go You're again. Correct. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, M83. I had, I had forgotten about those guys. Very specifically, Kings of Leon only started sounding exactly like M83 after they'd literally toured with them. And it was so clear that the King, especially you, somebody, sounds like M83 heard from uh, some remove, probably backstage. And it's quite clear to me that the Follow Wills were just drinking after their own set and thinking, yeah, what if we just do that? But you tubify it 20%. Mm. I'm back. How do you make tea so quickly? Well, well done. Well, I don't let it brew like you used to. Yeah, uh, I do need to get out of that. Uh, Thorpe makes the best tea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's far better than mine. It's almost unfair because I always wake up first and make tea for the both of us. But the tea I make is so inferior to hers, it's as though it's an incentive for her to get up more quickly. That's not my intention, that's just how it goes. You've got biscuits as well. Yeah, I've got some sugar-free rich tea biscuits in the little corner shop round the corner from me, which is not one street over from your old house in Norwich, Fletch. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They sell these sugar-free biscuits. They're really good, really tasty. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Is this another advertisement? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds a bit like that, doesn't it? Anyway, this is one sensational shot. The Evening Glass with Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton. What haven't we talked about thus far? We've talked about the virtues or lack thereof of trying to desperately change your subscription service, video-on-demand subscription services for television. So it's best to binge-watch as much as you humanly can. So, uh, Fletch... We should probably delve into my DVD A to Z, my ongoing project to try and devour my complete DVD collection. We're still in A. You, uh, you're probably going to notice. I know that we did touch on Big Trouble and Little China in the last episode, and yes, we do dive around a little bit just whenever we have an opportunity to uh, get an anniversary in or something like that. But we had to go back to a film that I hadn't seen in a long, long time. Fletch and I actually managed to watch this, sit down and watch this together. Uh, whilst uh, you were up for my birthday. This is back in August, so it's a while ago now, isn't it, Fletch? Mm. The 1981 film Arthur, Dudley Moore. Not to be confused with the 2007 film with Russell Brand. Was it 2007? Round about that? Slightly later, because it was post-forgetting Sarah Marshall, so I would guess it was... 10. Okay, fine. Now you're going to Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're going to Google it. So yeah, yeah, that that was a remake of the Dudley Moore. uh... You don't get the jingle. You do not get the jingle, (laughs) Fletch. (laughs) Anyway, 1981, Arthur. So yeah, in fact, 2011, that would have been an anniversary year. 
uh, because Arthur's such mm. a massive classic. I'm sure the Arthur fans were just waiting at the gates for the big anniversary year and the remake yeah. to come through. Uh, yeah, so Dudley, the, the Venn diagram of fans of Dudley Moore and fans of Russell Brand <laughs> isn't two <laughs> completely discrete fucking circles, is it? You know. <laughs> <laughs> but we um, watched it. We were, and we were, we weren't even. We um, there was a, an element of reluctance, but we went with it and stuck with it because I remember saying, "Let's just put it on." Uh, we didn't know why you'd bought it. It wasn't easy to identify why on earth you even owned it <laughs> because you're not a Dudley Moore fan. No. And regrettably, the um, the man behind it, whose name I always forget. Oh, uh, Steve Gordon. Steve Gordon wrote and directed what, it. Yeah, dabbled in television and had one or two other screenplays to his name, but this was the only film he ever directed, and then died within months of its release. So that adds this kind of poignancy to it. Um, oh, I really don't want people to take this the wrong way, because uh, he died. The guy died after the, after he made the film and after it came out, but the film deals with death as well mm. in a poignant way. So there's there's some kind of juxtaposition there. Some far more. In, intelligent than me will be able to maybe discuss that and have a think about that but yeah Dudley Moore this is his film so of course most people will know Dudley Moore probably from like all the comedy albums in the late 70s in the UK and a lot of the stuff he's doing in, in the late 60s and through the 70s in the TV uh, in, in British television mm-hmm. and of course he then in the very late 70s going into the 80s um, went to, went to Hollywood moved to Hollywood and um, uh, to become a big star and Arthur was his first massive hit i think he was in one or two pictures before wasn't he that, that did okay but arthur 10 was... was very big though as well but right arthur was disproportionately huge i suppose especially considering that he was a diminutive fellow huh <laughs> is that <laughs> not really worth harsh. a jingle <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know you you you've thrown me but uh anyway <laughs> arthur is a uh, very rich, very rich millionaire who doesn't really have an awful lot to do. We we open the film with him, and we we get the feeling that really he just gets his uh, driver to drive him around New York, drink quite heavily, and just take prostitutes out and uh, you know treat them very very nicely, uh, and then see them back to to their house or their flat the next day with his driver. So he's just a playboy living at large. How rich are you? I wish I had a dime for every dime I have. <laughs> Anticipating your condition, I brought you orange juice, coffee, and aspirins. Or do you need to throw up? Usually one must go to a bowling alley to meet a woman of your stature. I take it this bum will be calling you. Dad, he's a millionaire. You have my permission to marry him. Are you a hooker? I forgot. I just thought I was doing great with you. Will you take my hand? That would leave you with one. I'm going to take my coat. You don't have a coat. Well, I'm going to take my tie. You're a rich one. How does it feel to have all that money? Feels great. The dumb question. It's so funny now. I sometimes just think funny things. What do you do for a living? I race cars, I play tennis, I fondle women, but I have weekends off and I am my own boss. Dudley Moore is Arthur. And he's on the brink of an arranged marriage. He ends up falling for a working class girl from Queens, and that's uh, Liza Minnelli. So um, that's really the, the whole crux of the film, and it is funny. Like we said, it's, it's a it's a comedy film, and it's got it's filled with great Dudley Moore one-liners, uh, and I think much of the film really works um, very very well. The the between the character uh, the character of Arthur Dudley Moore's character, and also um, his his butler, 
And they really are the heart of the film. It's his butler who very sadly later on in the film uh, does fall ill and that becomes a big driving force of the film. But a lot of the one-liners work between the two of them. Uh, For example, uh, you know, uh, Dudley Moore will sit there and go, do you know what I'm going to do? No, I don't. I'm going to take a bath. I'll alert the media. (laughs) It's that kind of thing. And he gives him, you know, that they're in a waiting room at one point, uh, if you remember, and he, uh, he says... Here, read this magazine. It has many pictures. <laughs> it's loads it's of all, great... Yeah, it's all conceptually funny, isn't it? Those are jokes, and I, while watching it, we weren't laughing. No, but well, that's mostly because we were hungover. But but that, but the funny, the what I found most interesting is that they are funny lines, but mm. it's such a different kind of comedy to what we're used to. The kind of jokes that. People laugh at in the theatre to show that they get the joke. Oh, this is so wonderfully dry. But mm. it, is, it is definitely funny. And that uh, Dudley Moore's performance as Arthur the alcoholic, and he is a dipsomaniac come alcoholic, he does portray an alcoholic very well and realistically, but at the expense of comedy in a way. I get the feeling that early 80s audiences lapped it up and thought he was hilarious. We didn't, did we? No, I mean, I suppose it has dated. Um, you can see how it's funny and how someone born in the 30s or 40s might find it to be really funny. And he does well because it is, I, I find it, he does act as in the way that alcoholics do act, constantly covering for himself and acting clever knife edge of, uh, that difficult knife edge of trying to act slightly less drunk than you are but that emphasises and exaggerates how drunk you actually are. I think he plays it great, and uh, it is a moving film. The relationship between him and his butler is is great, and of course his his butler really is the only father figure that he has, truly, and he falls ill. Uh, You know, a lot of the drive of the film uh, becomes the fact that his butler actually wants to see him happily married, and of course he's only going to do that if he follows his heart, and... uh, goes for Liza Minnelli, the poor girl from Queens, whose father um, is played by Barney Martin, our friend mm. from Seinfeld, uh, Jerry's dad from Seinfeld. So uh, he's decent in it. He's He's got some of the best <laughs> best moments uh, in the film when uh, uh, I think um, at one point Dudley Moore comes around to Liza's flat to offer her all of this money uh, and uh, she turns it down. And Barney Martin's listening through the door and you can hear him go, ah! <laughs> you know, turns down $100,000 or whatever it is. So, uh, it, yeah, there's some great moments in that. And, of course, maybe it's true lasting legacy beyond the Russell Brand remake in 2011 is maybe the theme song. And you and I love films that have theme songs. Yeah. When you get caught between the moon and New York City. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a great chorus uh, forgettable verses, <laughs> a wonderful chorus, and it was a big hit, I think, in '81, wasn't it? I liked it. I like the song. I find myself singing it occasionally. I think because I'm I'm so far removed from that era that I can appreciate the songwriting, discrete from its hype and proliferation and exposure. I think that's part of it. It's the way that I'm able to get down with Genesis a little bit and Phil Collins as well. And I've no doubt that if I was around at the time, I would have despised them. And I would have listened only to Huskadoo and Replacements and hated Genesis. But I can't I can't deny against all odds, you know. Yeah, but Baccarat, uh, Baccarat sorry, uh, is actually one of the songwriters uh, of the song. It's definitely got that easy listening feel, hasn't it? Mm. 
A bit like your Genesis, Fletch. <laughs> you and I were talking about it a little while ago when we were uh, still living together in London and we were watching on Vintage TV, which is that great uh, Freeview channel that will play just loads of old uh, music videos. And we were watching like Phil Collins Hour or Phil Collins Night or something. <laughs> yeah. and, and you and I were sort of saying, what a, what a time it was, a more innocent time. May not have felt it for people at the time, but the 80s, a time where... A, sh- a short, bald, slightly overweight man could be the biggest rock star in the world. Yeah. What an on era. MTV as well. That's that's the staggering thing is that, admittedly, his acclaim with Genesis was in the seventies, but then Peter Gabriel left and he became the frontman. How is it that in the age of the music video, Phil Collins became among the biggest stars on the planet? He's honest. That's I don't mean to damn him with faint praise, but I do find him to be honest. And he has a go, and he likes. He does a little bit of acting. Turns up in Hook. I grew up with oh, Buster, yeah, yeah. so I quite liked Buster as a film. I haven't seen all of his cinematic offerings. I've got time for Phil Collins. Uh, Shall yeah. I get you the biography, or the autobiography for Christmas Fletch? Is that on your list? You know, if you the... did, I wouldn't be disappointed. We've also got similar hair. I can see that I'm going to go bald in a similar way because we both got very <laughs> fine hair. I like Collins. There's, you know, there's. Uh, the tabloids went after him, and I think he did some. He made references to voting Tory, or uh, no, I think it was um, he considered or then became a tax exile. wasn't the only person to do that. And then the tabloids ran with rather disingenuous, mean spirited stories about how he divorced his wife by fax, which isn't the case. It was uh, the relationship was completely done and dusted, and then there was a point where. Yeah, a fax was sent which was divorcing them, but um, it wasn't as though that wasn't her first news of it. He hadn't fled to Aruba with a 22-year-old and then sent a fax. Uh, Also, it's kind of quaint and provincial in itself these days, isn't it? Divorced by fax. (laughs) That's how Frank Black broke up the Pixies, right? Didn't he send them all the fax? Did he? Yeah, that's the legend. That's definitely the legend. (laughs) Did people between 1987 and 1994 all have home fax machines? Because I've only ever seen a home fax machine in two houses I've been in. Uh, one was in the 90s, one was a bit more recently. Oh, you should have come to our house, Fletch. We had a home fax machine. Did you? Uh, yeah, well, we didn't really need to use it. It was my dad's fax machine for work. Uh, being an engineer, he needed to get drawings. And mm. it was, I think, in a lot of ways, um, he was using it up until maybe three or four years ago before it finally kind of bit the dust. But... Yeah. I think in some ways it's actually the the quickest way of uh, getting across something. I guess these days people have digital uh, pads that they can then do do a hand drawing on, which will immediately be in the computer. But my yeah. dad was still doing stuff on the back of a fag packet with dimensions and a rough drawing <laughs> of it and then sending it off. So, fax machine. I think fax machine was the big jump, though. I've argued this with people and they don't see my point of view. The greatest technological jump was between... Mail and fax machine, not between fax machine and email. So now it, you're it thinking takes... male and then female. And <laughs> no, 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 no. That's it, Genesis. Yeah, so... That's Genesis. Oh, it goes back <laughs> to Phil Collins. <laughs> it takes it takes two days, three days to receive a letter. It takes two or three minutes to receive a fax. It takes two or three seconds to receive an email. But why do we need to save that one minute and fifty five seconds? That's the we don't, do we? Was, was the world no? But was the world any worse? This is the, this is one of the, the problems I have. Uh, 
there's a conceit that that we're saving an extraordinary amount of time now, but we weren't. Emails don't... It, it, it's not necessary for things to be as fast as an email. I think it creates work, emails. Yeah. <laughs> it really does, because, um, I mean, in I work at a marketing agency, and... Um, you know, I'll be involved in a really big project with a client where we're creating loads of posters for uh, um, uh, an ad campaign. You know, that's going to be in bus shelters, in branch, you know, in retail branches, all sorts. These posters are going to be everywhere. There's going to be digital banners that go on the web- on websites and take over websites and all this kind of thing. We're dealing with all these assets, hundreds of assets that need to be created. And instead of everyone, I'm dealing with maybe two or three different agencies and the client. But instead of getting just a solid plan in place and maybe people sticking to it, I've worked lots of different places. This is the way it generally works. You feel inclined. I think everyone just feels inclined to like fire off emails, making decisions as you go and changing yeah. things and changing them back. And everything's a moving target the whole time. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. No, I have the same thing. I have um, yeah, too many emails. So that, I, I think that's the grand technological jump. And even though I now have a science phone, there's some days I wish that... One of the best days I had was one day where I think it was updating, so I was without it for three or four hours. That was brilliant. I felt so free being untethered. Yeah. And I'd already told people, I'm going to do a thing that I haven't done with my phone before, so I may not be able to text. So I, no one texted me, and I didn't text anybody. I didn't feel the need to look at it, and I went off and watched television on one of the 28 platforms that exist to do that. <laughs> I was very happy. I actually got something done, you know. I watched half of an episode of Bill Maher. Well, that's the other thing as well is, you, you you know, I try and put my phone away now. I got a real habit of what what the media call dual screening when you're, you're, you've got your phone. You know, you're checking Wikipedia out or IMDb going, oh, who's that guy? Oh, yeah, he's in that other thing. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then you go down some r- random internet rabbit hole on your phone and then you realize you've missed 15 minutes of the of the show and you, you don't know oh, how they get here. I have no idea. Oh, because I was just doing pointless rubbish on my phone. We um, must reject it, and I do as well. I, uh, I never use my phone while watching a film or while watching television. If I do need to use my phone, I pause it. That's one reason why it takes longer to watch stuff. And Luke can detail to you the mm. seven other reasons why it takes four hours to watch a two-hour film with me. Yeah. Because yeah, I've forgotten I... all of them. But... um. I don't like to mess about with my phone because I'm I'm there to watch the mise-en-scene and the cinematography and take in the dialogue and look at the complexities of the performance and try to feel it's, you know, it's a trying to communicate something to me. It will not be able to do that if I don't give it my attention. I'll come on to this briefly. I said earlier that I wanted to go into depth about Call Me By Your Name in a couple of weeks' time when we do our best of the year. It struck me immediately. It struck me in a way that I haven't been hit hard at the cinema this year very often. Um, it wasn't even a grin on my face when I was watching Call Me By Your Name. It was uh, my my mouth was agape with wonder and enjoyment of certain scenes. But I bring it up today because a few weeks ago at football, 
and I find this quite an endearing story actually and I, I don't mean to talk about how great my dad is and the kind of inclusive environment in which I was raised and it, it, there was never any doubt about it either it was never pronounced it was just the way it was but I was at the football pub with my dad and my uncles and my dad said oh yeah what's that film um what's that film that's coming out where the bloke's a gay bloke and you can imagine that with many people of our age this wouldn't be a very enjoyable conversation you know mm. would you agree right yeah, and I sure. said I said uh I'll call me by your name with army hammer and he said yeah yeah that one right um and he's playing a gay bloke, and apparently he's going to win an Academy Award for playing a gay bloke. Um, this Army Hammer, he's not gay. Why can't gay people play gay people? Why aren't they doing that? You know what? We should have a hashtag. Oscar's so straight. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right? And I thought, you know, that's a pretty heartwarming story to an extent, because there are still people whose parents are a little bit funny about that sort of thing. And certainly, they're, you know, if you're older than us, then it's entirely likely that your parents wouldn't have that kind of just basically accepting attitude. And I, you know, um, but at the same time, my dad was saying something which I consider a little bit silly because I feel that actors can play anybody. Um, short of actual blackface, I don't have a problem with actors portraying any number of things because they're flipping actors, you know. No one worries when John Turturro plays a Jew in his Sicilian. No one worries about Cliff Curtis playing a Mexican when he's Maori from New Zealand and, you know, looks like Taika Waititi or Timura Morrison, a.k.a. Django Fett. So, I, you know... <laughs> So it, my dad had made a really um, endearing point, but at the same time I thought, well, you know, I, I don't know, you know, they are actors after all, right? And then I looked into it, and this is why I bring it to our attention, right? There hasn't been a single out Best Actor nominee this century. Wow. Isn't that mad, right? And I haven't briefed Luke before this, and I, do, I would like people to fact-check this for me, but the closest we've got, right, is... Um, Jeremy Renner, who some yeah. people feel might be in the closet, and yeah. there's one that I'm not even going to mention because it would be cantankerous to do so, and uh, James Franco, who's probably by, I can't even remember who the last one was, that was even a maybe, that was even a maybe, right? Um, and bearing in mind that there's been, I, I counted, there's been six Best Actor nominated performances for playing gay people. For playing um, Alan Turing by Benedict Cumberbatch, for Javier Bardem in Before Night Falls, Brokeback Mountain, for instance, Sean mm. Penn winning for playing Harvey Milk, and that's when I thought, because you know, I brushed off my dad's assertion. I thought, oh, you know, that's kind of a funny satirical way of looking at it. And yes, it would be good if there were more out male gay actors that were able to take leading roles. But uh, you know, it's it's all right if straight actors play those roles. That's not that's not problematic for me, you know, it's um, it's not straight face or gay face, whatever on earth we would call it. Sure, sure. Um, and then after looking into it, I thought, shit, we've still got a lot of work to do. And then going into the 90s, right, and it's funny because I did this about a week before Kevin Spacey had his grand outing. In the 90s, there was only McKellen and Nigel Hawthorne and subsequently Kevin Spacey, who wasn't out at the time and is barely out now. Now, that's only for best actor, bearing in mind, but... It really, I think it really does show how far we need to move and that um, Western liberal society has come an incredibly long way in just 80 years, right? As my dad was saying, like, the persecution that Turing received in the 40s just for being trying to be mm, yeah. or hiding, having to hide who he wanted to be. The, the bloke 
was a fucking war hero, mm, and he exactly. couldn't even yeah. couldn't even date. That's outrageous. It's outrageous, especially in context when you know they all went to those public schools where stuff goes on. Mm. You know, ah, oh, and um, the the uh, disingenuousness and the hypocrisy of that. But so we've moved, we've come so far, and yet we don't have out actors. We don't have out leading man actors. Well, bring them on, right? You know, let's get a few of them out. Goodness me. Do you know what I mean? So what do you think about that? Other than, like, it's a bad thing and we need to make a good thing. But isn't that staggering? It is staggering. I think statistically speaking, um, out of all the people, the males who've been nominated for Best Actor, some of those people are going to be gay. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Like you say, say, in terms of outed male actors, it's not there. And I think Hollywood's always... um, It always seems about... 30 years behind the rest of the world in so many ways, doesn't it? It really, really does. I, it, some of the artistics that, that it produces expresses very forward-thinking, progressive morals and, and points of view and outlooks on life. But as an industry, it's 30, 40 years behind the rest of the world. <laughs> Quite how it got to that, how it's yeah. gotten to that point, I don't know. I, I mean, at the end of the day, it's because, um, in my opinion, it's run, as most of the world is, by rich white men. Uh, and one day that won't be the case. And it's not even, it's not, I don't think it's even a conspiracy. It's just people perpetrate what they're familiar with. People support what they're familiar with. But uh, but yeah, it's um, it's certainly an odd statistic. Uh, I, it was a complete shock to me that there had not been one single out gay man uh, as a winner yeah. a winner of, um, of Best Actor. That That is utterly shocking to me. We won't pretend that we don't know one of the big reasons, as Luke has alluded to. It's commercial. We, it's what's commercial. However, right, at the same time, how is it that Sean Penn can win an Academy Award for playing a gay man? How is it that Milk can be commercial enough that it wins Academy Awards and is lauded and Hollywood says, oh, aren't we good for producing this wonderful film about gay rights and how sad it was to be gay in the 70s? And look how we've moved on. We no longer shoot to death our gay politicians. Mm. Well done us, you know. Um, how is it that... He can get the Oscar, but oh well, we're not going to cast a gay man. <laughs> That's messed up. That is messed up. So I, I'm maybe we should. I don't know if we should start that hashtag or not. But it's something I'm going to keep an eye on. Um, I haven't yet run the diagnostics on best supporting or on um, actresses. I mean, Jodie Foster will play a big part because she's well. Actually, she she's been kind of out for a long time. I don't know when she officially came out. She's a little bit like Spacey in that way that. Um, I think she only came out like 10 years ago, but everybody kind of knew for double that time. Mm. But uh, yeah, this is just something I noticed a couple of weeks ago and I thought I'll have to mention that on the podcast. Byrne reminds me, like, we shouldn't be complacent. These liberties can be lost. And I, mm. I refer back to the 20, like the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age and into mm. the 30s. That was an incredibly liberal time. Paris, New York, Chicago, London, mm. Berlin, in Berlin, you could be what you wanted to be. And in Hollywood as well, there were out lesbians in Hollywood in the 20s and pretty much out gay men as well. And it was understood that it was because they were artists. They were flamboyant people. You, you know, the arts generally, if you want good art, you're going to have to have some people with different perspectives. Right. Mm-hmm. And all that was all that was lost in the thir- in the late 30s and in the 40s. And it was reset. We shouldn't forget that those that can be taken away from us again. Don't ever think that there won't be an erosion of liberties. So let's. You know, let's keep an eye out on these things. And I, I don't often find myself agreeing with the fairly radical, bleating, um, clickbait, liberal left. But here's one where you, yeah, we, we do have to keep an eye out. So thanks very much for listening to that one. 
<laughs> well, I'm going to try and check out um, Call Me By Your Name as soon as I can. I know that Lex is very keen to see that too. So, um, weather permitting uh, and uh, and listing cinema listings permitting, we'll certainly yeah. certainly be on to see that one. It's glorious. It's glorious. And um, when, as I said, we'll talk about it in another podcast, and I'll go through all of the things that attract me to it immediately, not least that it's set in 1983. There you have it, the final uh, evening glass of 2017. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we will certainly be doing our roundup of all the cinematic releases of 2017. That's going to be on our next episode, most likely. So look forward to having you guys tune in and listen to listen to that one too. And of course, in the meantime, do get in touch with us about anything in 2017 that we've missed or anything indeed that you think uh, we, we should be talking about or what was just your favourite movie, TV show, whatever it might be of 2017. Do let us know. You can do that at onesensationalshot.com you can of course go to twitter and it's at one sensational that's our twitter handle and of course we're also on facebook if you just search facebook for one sensational shot you'll find us there but everything you need at one sensationalshot.com please also do uh review us we've got some great reviews starting to come through and it really helps with our rankings and getting people to find and discover the show so do uh review us on itunes and stitcher and uh, tell all your friends we're on spotify now too which is exciting stuff so uh, you can listen to us on spotify thanks very much guys it's been one hell of a 2017 and i look forward to speaking to you all very very soon in the meantime happy holidays and love to you and yours thanks very much sell these sugar-free biscuits they're really good really tasty you wouldn't be able to tell the difference